Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Jenna Della Chesney, herself a trauma survivor who now works with other traumatized communities. Drawing from her own painful past, she teaches these communities how to not only survive their traumas, but to ultimately thrive beyond the boundaries created by their life-altering experiences. Hear this courageous story of resilience and how her own story becomes the fuel in her quest to help make this world a tiny bit better, one survivor at a time. Please welcome... Jenna Delachesney. Welcome, Jenna, to Phoenix Tales. I start the conversation off by asking one question, and that is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your life? Well, there have been many. The most formative would certainly be the sexual abuse that I experienced from my father when I was 11. And how long did the abuse last? A couple of years. Living with him or uh, moving out of his house or what was the family situation that sort of created this environment? I was born in Mexico and um, we all lived there together. And then when I was about five and a half, my mom, who was pregnant with my sister, my older brother and I left Mexico and came to live with my grandparents in Westchester. And so I would spend the summers in Mexico with my father or he would come and visit uh, during Christmas. So you were basically alone with him when this happened. So you would be there for the summer and spending all your time with him. Right. Or when he came to visit. Yeah. I know that a lot of um, abuse uh, sufferers or uh, survivors sometimes have relapse memory, meaning they sort of bury the memory of the abuse until much later in life. Was that your situation? Yeah, for me, there were always things that I would remember and then would immediately just shut down. And then when my father passed away in 2018, I had a lot of things kind of resurface. So when was the first moment where you started to understand that this had happened to you? And how old were you when this happened? That recognition occurred? Immediately. (laughs) Um, I was 11. And I laugh about it because I think we tend to have a bit of a macabre humor, definitely a coping mechanism. I think my first feeling was one of shock, just utter shock and um, surprise and hurt. And then, you know, just a maelstrom of other emotions that would accompany that. And was there anybody in your life that you could share what was happening to you with or... Was it something that you had to kind of hold as a secret? Yeah, I didn't tell anybody for a long time. And I think that myself and other people that I know that experience this tend to both diminish it and also kind of normalize it. I didn't know anything different. So uh, I knew that it was wrong, but how do I explain this? I didn't know that it was also happening to other people. And I think that's part of the problem. 
we're in so much pain. We don't know how to handle it. We're children. And so we hide it. And there's also a lot of shame. And I think that if more and more people talked about it, which they're starting to do, people like myself would have been able to to find help. So I would imagine that at that age where you're sort of pre-pubescent, so you're starting to change physically, leaving childhood into womanhood. And more importantly, because it's your parental figure that sometimes children can confuse the abuse as an act of love, right? Where you sort of conflate the two issue, the two things as one. Did you experience that as well, where you thought, well, I know this is wrong, but this is how he shows me love? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was, you know, he was my father and I adored him. And that's why it's so, so difficult, especially for survivors of incest. The person that you love is the one that tends to hurt you the most. That's incredibly confusing and painful, and it's an utter form of betrayal. And I would imagine that, and I, from what I know about abuse survivors, is that sort of the ripple effects of that in terms of affecting self-esteem, affecting interpersonal relationships with um, perhaps other partners, substance abuse, like it kind of runs the gamut in the sense that the survivor then turns the anger and the guilt onto themselves. Did you experience a lot of that as well? Yeah, for sure. It, It truly was the most formative because I was kind of going along my childhood. I was a straight A student and very bright and and athletic and and still bright to this day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, luckily that didn't stop. But my grades began to suffer when I was in high school. I would have these heart palpitations, insomnia. I was beginning to get an ulcer and no one had any idea what the hell was going on. So I got sent for a bunch of, of physical tests, but no one ever was like, these are the signs of trauma. And it's interesting because in the work that I do now, with trauma survivors and or even in talking to other parents of, of teenagers. And I start to hear kind of symptoms that are similar to what I was um, exhibiting. My first question is, was there a traumatic event? And then to go back to answer your question more fully, I definitely became sexually promiscuous in high school. I conflated the idea that being desired meant love. I think that that's one that a lot of women kind of work with as well, and men too, for sure. And I had a lot of anger, and I took it out often by like hitting doors or walls. I never hurt anyone else. Still to this day, I use my anger to fuel me to help other people. And I would imagine that, especially in college, when we're all sort of exploring ourselves, right? It's the period in which we separate from our parents' identity, start to figure out who we are as individuals. And a lot of that does involve experimentation, right? Experimenting of different personas, perhaps sexual partners, drugs. So did you find that your college experience was even more heightened because of that, of your uh, survivor status? No, for me, it was kind of the opposite. You know, when I was in high school, I did did so many drugs. Again, I'm laughing. I shouldn't be laughing. But I did a lot of drugs and I was very promiscuous and I was living at home, which was not an easy situation. My grandparents were very strict. And, you know, I also have a younger sister. Uh, She's passed away now, but uh, she had extreme disabilities. And so there was just so much 
going on at home that when I left and went to college, I felt no longer any need to continue doing all of those drugs and started to have monogamous relationships. I always sought my kind of safe and secure attachment figures in one way or another. And so when I got to college and I was surrounded by photographers and writers and athletes, I felt like I'd found my tribe. So I want to go back to the other part of my question, which is sort of the ripple effects of being an abuse survivor on interpersonal relationships. So how did that affect your relationships with partners? For a long time, I was a serial monogamist. I was in relationships with men who were very nurturing and very kind. And I was very lucky to to have found that and to have cultivated that. And then when I was in my mid to late 20s, I found that I was kind of unsatisfied. And not from whom they were, but more that my my nervous system was kind of looking for the uh, dysregulation that my father had kind of incited. And so I ended up getting into a relationship with my ex-husband who was very dysregulated and also had his own trauma history. In effect, what I was doing was recreating a pattern. And I find that a lot of people do this, whether or not you're a trauma survivor, but especially if you're a trauma survivor. So can you tell us what that means to be dysregulated? We all can be in dysregulated states, especially if we're working with stress, because that's just what happens when you're alive. But when you're consistently dysregulated, let's say working with a lot of anxiety or depression, or if you're working with anxiety and depression all in the course of one day, those are usually uh, the effects of having a nervous system that's been tweaked by traumatic events. And I've had a lot of them. Like when I talk about complex trauma, because it runs the gamut from car accidents to injuries to abuse to witnessing abuse. So the more I lived my life, the more I was experiencing traumatic events. And it's interesting because my marriage was a traumatic event. We would dysregulate each other all the time. And then that becomes the pattern. And so that your nervous system starts to seek that because that's what it knows. That's what it's familiar with. And a lot of people that I've worked with, even including myself, the concept of being happy is so unfamiliar that, and we're not used to it, that we can sometimes push that away because our nervous system is just like, what is that? So you went through sort of the acting out phases of this trauma, obviously through high school and the lasting effects of that in terms of, you know, how it helped regulate different relationships. Was there ever a moment at which things got so bad that you said, oh, okay, now I have to really deal with this head on? It was always there. I just wasn't dealing with it. I I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. The way that I, I had been kind of dealing with it was by being an athlete. I was a competitive athlete, still am, but it's still there in the body, you know, and it started to kind of call for my attention deeply. And it wasn't really until I started uh, practicing yoga that I realized it needed to be tended to because it was in some cases just pouring out of my body. You know, and then when you start to practice mindfulness, whether it's meditation or yoga or different forms of movement, you can't not begin to deal with it. From a somatic standpoint, right? From a somatic standpoint and also a a kind of authentic, genuine witnessing of the self. 
So going back to as a survivor, do you have children? I have two daughters and, and yeah, that's, thank you for, not for reminding me, but for, <laughs> for bringing that into the equation because. Well, you know, I was going to ask the question. So what I've read about abuse survivors is that there's some part of them that's deathly afraid that legacy gets carried on in the next generation. And, and then especially having daughters, I would imagine that that kind of fear can be magnified a thousand times over. So can you describe your experience of what it was like to be a a mother, uh, mothering two young girls with this trauma as sort of the backstory to your identity? For me, and I've seen this with other people, the moment that you have children and if you have any unresolved childhood trauma, unmetabolized childhood trauma, it comes flooding back. And or you try to tamp it down and you're not dealing with it and then it starts to affect other parts of your life. So I was definitely, especially when they hit pre-adolescence, a lot of it came back to me. But I'd already been working on it, but it definitely became much more almost visceral in a way, you know. Even now to this day, as a woman and as a survivor of sexual abuse, I am enraged that it still happens and I'm enraged that my children have to deal with it and there's nothing I can do about it. So can you give us some examples of how it affected your role as a mother? Like, were you uh, an overprotective mother? Can you just kind of give us a sense of what that was like? Well, I was always very clear and I always made sure to speak with them about it. If anybody made them feel uncomfortable, you know, to tell somebody um, that they could could and should always say no. I taught them self-defense techniques. I made sure that they had situational awareness. Don't wear your headphones down the street at night. Look where the exits are. Make sure nobody's following you. I wouldn't say overprotective. Like I didn't stop them from doing things, but I was fierce. But what's ironic about that is what you're describing is protecting them from the outside world, right? And your personal experiences, the trauma experienced within the home with someone who's the closest to you. So how does that impact how you are as a mother? I made sure to break the cycles just from what I experienced with my father. But, you know, like my grandparents who were incredibly stern and judgmental. And so I parented my children in a very different way. And made sure to do that so that they would be raised in a way that they felt loved and supported. And I recognized as well that it wasn't just that I was breaking intergenerational cycles. You know, my father had experienced his own abuse and my grandparents experienced their own abuse and, you know, in whatever way. And, you know, this is how we break it. Stop it. So did it also make you fearful and more observant of their relationship with their father or any other male figure that you might have brought into the home? Yeah, 100%. With their father, I never, never worried or anything like that. But yeah, anytime that I would bring a man into the home, you know, being a divorced single mother, I was very wary, of course. So since you didn't really have like a dramatic inflection point, and this is something that's just kind of been the thread, right, uh, woven through your entire life, At what point did you then start to kind of understand how to use your personal trauma as a vehicle to make change? Well, I just want to back up a little bit. I don't know that it wasn't 
that there wasn't, you know, another kind of, what did you say, inflective? Yeah, like an inflection point, like you hitting a moment where you were like, okay, this is, I can't handle this anymore the way I've been trying to cope with it. I need to make changes. You know, some dramatic moment where, you know, I always like to use the the image of falling on your knees, right? Getting down on your knees and realizing that you you need help or you need to change things up. I mean, I definitely experienced that when my father died because I had been taking care of him and he was living in Las Vegas. He developed diabetes. It was just an awful, awful situation. He'd had to have his leg amputated and I was the one that cared for him. And it was incredibly difficult. And I definitely became dysregulated. And the choice to continue caring for him, you know, a lot of people thought that I was crazy, but I needed to care for him for myself. Can you tell us why? I mean, I would love to hear your rationale for that. Because I'm the kind of person that doesn't walk away. So did you have a moment with him where you could have the honest conversation? No, I tried when I was in my 20s, which is when I first told my mother and my brother what had happened. I had written a letter to my father telling him that I didn't like how he looked at me, how he talked to me, made me really uncomfortable. And his response was that he didn't know what I was talking about, even though I know he knew what I was talking about. In years after that, every once in a while, we would get together and he would tell me stories of things that he had experienced. So I knew that he was suffering. And I also know that he would have had no cause to harm me or anybody else if he wasn't suffering. And this also, this kind of wisdom came from years and years of practice as a Buddhist. And so in caring for him, I was witnessing all of this, including my own extreme pain and compassion. And so when he died, I remember, and it, that was exactly at the same moment that a relationship that I had with a man, which was intensely sexual, the relationship ended, my father died, and I would wake up in the morning just wanting to vomit. And literally, as you said, be on my knees sometimes in grief. Mm-hmm. I did go and see a, um, a trauma therapist. I hadn't seen anybody for a very long time. And when I spoke with him and and told him about what I do and and my experiences and blah, 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 you know, he said to me, he's like, you know, you know more about trauma personally and professionally than anybody I know. I mean, all I could really do was nod. And I kept seeing him for a few sessions. And then eventually I realized, like, I, I already had what I needed. And that was to keep practicing. So can you go back to this idea of practice and obviously practicing through the lens of Buddhism, when did you start that? And was that part of how you came to a be the one and to be able to take care of your father as he was dying without sort of recoiling or making him suffer in any way? Well, my brother was there as well. You know, we would kind of tag team. And luckily, my brother did not suffer sexual abuse from him. So I did have my brother's support, but I've been practicing for a long time and I was always drawn to Buddhism and to philosophy and things like that. But it wasn't until I had started to do the embodied practices that I could see what was arising in my in my body before it started to affect my mind, although they're completely united. But you know what I mean? So I was able to start to use my body as a resource and as a tool to help regulate my nervous system and to have an understanding of where 
pain and joy and anger and all of the things are in the body. I remember the first time I did pigeon pose, which is a hip opener, and I wept. You know, you know, you have that moment in class, mm-hmm. you're just, yeah. you're just streaming <laughs> down your face and you're like, what the hell is this? Yes. And I also needed like hours and hours and hours of intense physical practice to get to that place where the mind was calm. So I was lucky to have that. And even now, every day I practice and uh, not just because I have to, right, because it's my way of regulating my nervous system, but it's also the, the doorway to wisdom. And the wisdom being and having an understanding that everybody alive wants the same things. So now that your father has passed and it's been a a few years, have you been able to put this into a different perspective? Meaning, I know for some people, trauma can become the main driving narrative of their story. And that can inform everything about their lives. I would imagine the death of him in a way, opened up space for you to perhaps to have a different view and maybe see the possibility for changing the narrative in some profound way. Yeah, but I'd already kind of been on that path, you know, like when I started teaching sharing practices, the way that I prefer to call it sharing practice. So I have been 100% focused on, on that, on sharing the same skills and the same tools that I've learned to heal myself for others to heal themselves and to come to a place of wisdom, especially with the project that I have going on in Uganda. You know, I am driven, just absolutely driven every day. That is my main focus is to continue to get the resources that that I need to to offer the skills and the practice to women, the women there, and including much other needed things like humanitarian aid. But yeah, it's uh, 100%. So how did his death impact you? Was there an impact at all? Well, yeah, for sure. The first thing that I thought was and uh, the term falling to your knees. I mean, I remember I got the phone call from the, the nursing home that he was in that he had died. And I was just like, oh, God, you know, what do I do? Do I get on a plane? I can't leave my kids, blah, blah, blah. And I fell to my knees. And then the, one of the first thoughts that I had was that I was free. I would imagine that the falling to the knees, was it relief? Was it grief? Was it a mixture of both? Like, I would imagine that that's a very complicated place for you, right? Yeah, I was relief. It was grief. It was exhaustion. You know, I'd been holding on to this and working with it since I was 11 years old and keeping myself strong for other people as well. And so it was all of those. And grief is the most complicated emotion. Oh, yes. Grief is different for each individual, right? And grief is different in different contexts, meaning grief of the loss of a parent will be different from the grief of loss of a child. Um, So can you kind of elaborate for me, what did that moment of falling on your knees, like what encompassed that kind of dramatic visual an emotional response. Yeah, it was definitely the feeling, the being free. That's the complicated thing that, you know, he was my father. And yes, he inflicted incredible suffering upon me, but he could also be funny and generous and charming. And, you know, undoubtedly he was a narcissistic sociopath. 
but <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, that's not funny, but it's funny. Just it's your, funny. It's kind right? of like, right? Yeah, your matter of fact way of describing him. The relationships with every human are complicated, especially when it's our parents or our children. And I'm glad that I have the ability to see that because nobody is entirely evil, you know, and unless you're a Buddha, no one is entirely full of grace. So how much of this did you share with your daughters and at what point in their development did you share it? I didn't tell them about my experiences with my father until he was dead. And I felt that one, it was time and two, I had to because I was experiencing so much grief. I told my oldest first and then I waited a little bit to tell the, the younger one. And what was their reaction because I'm assuming they had a relationship with your father as their grandfather, right? Well, my oldest did more than my youngest. My oldest had actually come with me to Las Vegas to see him. So she had a, a, a different reaction. And in fact, the first thing that she said to me when I told her that, that I had been sexually abused by him is she told me that she had been sexually abused by someone. Oh my gosh, how did you respond to that? Well, I was... Uh, was I in shock? No. Was I angered in a lot of anger and rage? Yes. And also sadness, just sadness, you know? Yeah, I would imagine that, that the mixture of those emotions must have been so intense because in a way you had been such a thoughtful mother understanding the, the danger signs in the road, right? That you were always looking out for. So what did that feel like to realize that you still missed the danger sign for your daughter? In spite of all of that? Well, because I'm human, my first thought was like that I had failed. And then I realized that, no, I hadn't failed. This young man had failed. That's the larger issue, you know, is how often do we as a society make excuses for men? Yes, I agree. So can you tell us about sort of the transition to, again, using your trauma as a vehicle for change and the work that you do in the world today? Because my sister was disabled. So I was, I was always around or I always had the ability to witness suffering and want to do something about it. So I wanted to use my skills to share with other people that they were not alone in their suffering. And I still do that. I'm still a photographer. Portraits and landscapes and things like that until I could come back to it through the work that I, I'm doing now in which I work with different traumatized populations, spend time with them, share skills with them, get to know them, know their stories. And then I can also photograph them and share their stories. So that's the work that you do in Uganda. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I run a small NGO that is focused on the women and the children in the slums of Katwe, Kampala. They are the most marginalized of the marginalized and probably about 99% of the women that I work with and that my team works with have all been raped. And so... There's a focus on utilizing skills to regulate the nervous system, but also to feel strong and have agency over one's body and one's life. And then we also offer humanitarian aid. So food, shelter, medical care, 
and we're doing a lot of we're trying to connect with other NGOs to get in clean water and and things like that. And then I also train trauma therapists and social workers and medical doctors, street counselors on how to utilize practices for themselves, but also to share them with the trauma survivors that they work with. And I've done that, you know, for about 10 years now. And now I'm going to school to get a master's in global public health. The world needs more people like you. That is a great place to stop. I'm going to ask one last question. And the question I'm going to ask is, if there is a person, past or present or future, that you would like to sit with, who would that be and why? My first instinct is that I would love to sit down with my future self. Oh, that's beautiful. Can you tell us why and what do you envision? I think that my future self would say thank you. You just made me cry. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't done this on this podcast yet. You just brought tears to my eyes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I think my future self would say thank you. You've done a good job. And conversely, I would say to my future self, thank you for inspiring me. Thank you. That is a beautiful, beautiful, eloquent way. And I wish all my listeners will think about that for themselves as well. How can people reach you? And more importantly, how can they learn about the uh, various projects that you're involved with? Well, my website, it's my name, com. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be our emeralds. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.